Welcome to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. I'm your host, Mandy Walls. Find me at LNXCHK on Twitter. Hi, folks. Welcome back. Uh, this week, I have with me Jake Cohen. Jake, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So tell us about yourself. Tell us about uh, what you do at PagerDuty and uh, a bit about uh, why you're here today. Sure. So a bit about me. I uh, came from the San Francisco Bay Area, much like many of us at PagerDuty, but ended up down here in uh, Santa Barbara because that's where I went to school was uh, UC Santa Barbara. Spent a few years while in undergrad working in IT, and that led to me working in this industry. I got my first job at uh, Logic Monitor, one of the SaaS-based monitoring companies. They're based here. And then I knew some of the original Rundeck folks. And after a good tenure at Logic Monitor, roughly six years, they said, we're doing really cool stuff. And I you know, really liked what I was hearing in terms of what they were doing around self-service automation. I could really understand value props. And uh, having been on the sales engineering side of the org, for a while, uh, understanding the value props was, you know, the most critical piece to me in terms of where I decided to go work next. So uh, that's what uh, eventually just drove me to PagerDuty was uh, their the PagerDuty's acquisition of of Rundeck, and I joined just a few months after the acquisition. Now I'm uh, working on the product management team for the process automation product suite, focusing on solutions and integrations built on top of the process automation platform. Awesome. So our topic today is sort of broadly automation, but more specifically, what uh, we've come to know as runbook automation. In your mind, like, how would you describe runbook automation for anyone who's thinking about it, and it maybe isn't familiar with that kind of automation sort of as a, a practice and what they can get out of it? The term runbook does come from a very old school idea I think it actually comes from the mainframe days where you would have literally a run book that was a set of tasks for a given procedure. And it was tasks written on paper. Uh, and then as things became uh, digitized, run books in IT and operations and even in engineering uh, became wikis and docs and confluence articles and that sort of thing. But it all still was based off of this notion of in a given situation, there is a known set of steps for a given procedure, whether that's to restore service or make an upgrade or provision access or provision infrastructure. The very simple concept of runbook automation is, well, we have the uh, ability to automate these steps and we can provide tooling to make it clear what each step is in that process. Uh, which is different than just, say, a script, which automates the whole process. And we can actually break up this end-to-end process into these automation primitives. So that's the, the basic concept for, for us or the OG Rundeck folks and, and for us still uh, on the process automation team. It's more than just that. It involves the ideas of standardizing a lot of the operations around these processes, whether that's standardizing logging, compliance, access, version control, key storage 
access. But also then what many who've kind of known Rundeck in its, in its older days is around the self-service nature of it. Mm-hmm. When we can put a more uh, simplified user interface on top of the invocation aspect of the runbook, then you don't need to be a domain expert in that particular process or more so the underlying technology involved in that process. And so for us, we think about this in terms of the, there's the automation piece, which is automating the old school wikis. There's the standardization, which is that whole compliance area. And then there's the delegation aspect, which Mm -hmm. is being able to pass off that automation to someone else in a safe manner. Yeah, all very important. And the composability of that so that lots of teams can use all those things. As you work with with folks, like, what are some common reasons that folks come across this kind of automation? It seems like it's a layer of tooling that gets brought in at a particular time. Are there places that you see it be more successful than others? You have to like, get to a certain place before you're ready for runbook automation? Yeah, good question. So the patterns that you know we have seen is that it tends to get brought in when there's a team gets above a certain size or the organization is structured in certain ways where there are it's it usually falls into one of these two these two or I'd say maybe three kind of categories that I just outlined where uh, they recognize that they have so much toil they have mm. so many manual processes that uh, the savings from just automating those, even if the people controlling the invocation and authoring of those automations are the same people who were doing them manually previously. So it's usually at kind of, you know, scale in that sense in terms of number of these toil type activities, or it's when the teams or organization get to a certain size where there are such dependencies between people. Mm. And those dependencies are driven by uh, a delta typically between a given individual's or team's capabilities or access or even tribal knowledge in the org. In the book, Working Backwards from Amazon, they talked about how they were able to break the dependencies between teams by effectively emulating what we now think of as, as you know, standard APIs, right? So it's like, okay. a, they could say like a team provided some way for other teams to access resources that that team basically provides as a service. Okay. So a very good example here is uh, where engineering needs to be able to perform very specific actions in production environments. Yes. And so what the production operations team does is provide these very specific automated runbooks to in the engineering team. And it's kind of like a team-to-team API, if you will. Mm-hmm. And that typically happens when the, you know an organization gets to a, a certain size and yeah. you have that division, a separation of, of concerns between an operations team and, a, and an or, uh, engineering team. Yeah. So it can be pretty broad, right? So you have a lot of potential projects and a lot of things that folks might be looking to implement with this kind of automation. Do you see like common hurdles that teams have to overcome to achieve what they're looking for with runbook automation? Yeah. So uh, you may have picked up on this, right? The, the number of use cases for this type of automation is very broad. Yes. And uh, a lot of that has to do with the nature of our flavor of runbook automation, which is a tool that can wrap around other expert level tools. So the most common 
I believe the most common integration for our customers is using our process automation product on top of Ansible. Mm-hmm. But then there's the incident response use cases, I mentioned patching and, and so on and so forth. So the com- most common hurdle I see is customers trying to identify where to start. Yeah, They have this lo- these big ambitious goals of self-service delegation and compliance and standardization across all of those areas that I mentioned, but that's usually an audacious project, especially for a company of a, a large size. And so where they struggle is trying to figure out where to start. And so incidentally, that's been a a big area of focus for us, which is steering people towards this use case of automating diagnostics, pulling diagnostic data as part of the incident response process. And and there are a variety of reasons for that. But that the reason for that is that it's very specific and it's uh, in a kind of a known space of incident response and uh, can demonstrate the core principles of self-service automation Mm -hmm. and and runbook automation without needing to say, let's be ambitious and start with an org-wide enterprise layer of automation. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And the automated diagnostic stuff is really interesting. It's like, it's a place where you're in an incident, there's something going on, there's something going wrong, and you want to minimize the impact of that and minimize the duration of that. So Let's dig into that a little bit more. Like what fits from sort of the runbook automation side of it into the automated diagnostic side that's going to help people with their incident response and managing their their availability that way. Yeah. So what's interesting about automated diagnostics is, you know, we deliberately chose that because for a couple of reasons. We we saw that as the the logical avenue to and for pushing customers as that is being their first use case for a couple of reasons. And the the first is certainly that notion of, well, there's the series of things that people do when they get paged mm-hmm. and just kind of, again, like the, the classical run book to auto, run book automation analog. And there's the, the things that people do to identify what is the root cause or to validate if it's a false positive, or there's the things that the domain experts do when they get pulled into an incident. And so when we, we looked at that and we realized, okay, there's an opportunity here, not just, just to save time in terms of the duration of the incident, but perhaps even more importantly, or more, even more uh, valuable to the customer is we can reduce the number of people that need to get pulled into an incident by performing the steps that those domain experts do to verify whether or not it's their domain that is causing the problem or is part of the problem. It's almost like deductive reasoning, right? So it's deducing, is is it a database issue? Is it a platform issue? Is it this service or is it that service? And can we therefore provide that first responder with a intuitive output of these diagnostic debug level checks that are typically performed by the domain expert in such a way that they can say, okay, I don't need to pull in the MySQL person. I don't need to pull in the RabbitMQ person. And so that's that's where our head is at with, with this use case. Yeah. Yeah. And with the additional components in the platform, having the authorization, authentication, all those kinds of components there, like that provides you with separation of duties and all the other things that folks might be worrying about that, that thinking about, oh, I have my responder. Do they have the right access for things? Like you're 
automation platform has the access that it needs for, for all that stuff. Right, right. So it ties into those exactly those earlier fundamental principles of runbook automation that we were they were talking about earlier. And one other thing I'll, I'll mention here, I was going to mention this, which is one of the other reasons that this was an elegant place for us to start in terms of where we're swaying customers, uh, especially those who are familiar with PagerDuty and its core value propositions as well, is that what we're trying to do is get the right people involved in an incident. And I would like to think that, uh, you know, Alex Solomon and, and the other co-founders of PagerDuty, my understanding is that that was kind of the basis, right? Which is we don't need to call in the cavalry every time there's an incident. We can be more precise with our response and our response plays. And so this is all about that as well, which is can we reduce the number of uh, response plays, for example, that a user needs to run in PagerDuty or something equivalent if, if they're not using PagerDuty, right? Which is can we uh, inform them that they don't need to pull in all of these people every time? So it is really core to the PagerDuty fundamental principles. Yeah, definitely. Like not every incident has to be all hands on deck. And yeah, yeah fortunately, we're seeing fewer and fewer folks still doing that, but they're still out there. And if you're <laughs> listening to this and you're still doing that, like give us a call. We can help you like figure all that stuff out so that you're only getting the people that you need onto an incident. Yeah. It's one of those uh, bold hat or big habits die hard something, something yeah. like that. Yeah, old old habits die die hard. Yeah, definitely. Uh, um, so folks are are still holding on to that. For folks who are new to all of this, is there sort of an overlap between what they might be using, say, a monitoring solution for, and what they might be getting out of an automated diagnostics provider on these kinds of things? Yeah, and that's a question that has come up already with customers. And it's one that we foresaw, especially uh, myself having come from the monitoring space and one of our, um, actually two of our other product managers on this team having worked in the monitoring space previously too. And uh, it can be confusing. The way that we try to simplify it down is that monitoring is meant to notify you when something has gone wrong, whether that's by a rule-based alert threshold, an anomaly detection rule, Observability tools are incredible these days with what they're able to pick up, and and that so that monitoring's purpose is to is to let you know that something's gone wrong. And that that's its primary purpose. Its secondary purpose is to help you with root cause uh, analysis and again that deductive reasoning. We see automated diagnostics as regardless of how good your observability is, let's emulate what the people do when they do get paged, when they do get brought in, because inevitably, regardless of how good your observability might be you still might then go into that observability tool and look at certain charts or logs or graphs or what have you. Or you might perform certain ad hoc queries from the monitoring tool. There's some of these monitoring tools provide that now. And so the way I would say is that uh, a lot of times monitoring tools don't necessarily provide the same level of debug diagnostic data that domain experts would go and retrieve during an incident. Mm-hmm. But even if they do, let's go and retrieve that data from the monitoring tool and surface that immediately to that first responder or translate that data from the monitoring tool in a format and or into content that that first responder can comprehend and do something with. So it's easy to see where that overlap is because we might be leveraging on monitoring, but mm-hmm. ultimately it has to do with the core purpose of it is to, again, 
emulate what those first responders are doing and uh, regardless of whether or not that data is in the monitoring tool. Yeah, then take it then to the next level of what the humans would do and work off from there. So yeah, interesting. For some of the more complex environments that folks might have, if they're working in, say, Kubernetes or other containerized environments and all those kinds of things, do you find that like the principles of the automated diagnostics and runbook automation are things still pretty much the same across those environments for folks that are using those kinds of things? Yeah, that's that's a good question too, because again, and we saw this in the monitoring space too, that things really are different when you are talking about environments that are based off of uh, containers and container orchestration. And the reason for that is that there's so much self-healing already baked into container orchestration. And, you know, there's such, right, the whole premise is like a stateful declaration of desired state and that sort of thing. And so with containerized environments, a lot of times, always the goal is service restoration. But with containerized environments, you can restore service so quickly that many times there isn't necessarily this uh, whole kind of triage operations that you would see with um, kind of classical infrastructure environments. And so what we have seen with customers is that this notion of diagnostics for triage isn't as valuable to them as being able to basically capture container state. Mm, Okay. Instant that an incident starts Mm -hmm. and capture that container state, store it, and then restore service also at kind of instant speed uh, or at incident speed, and then use that that captured container state for real root cause analysis. Uh, And when I say real root cause analysis, what I mean is there's root cause analysis to help with restoring service. And then there's root cause analysis to determine and identify what caused the problem uh, in the first place. And so a good example we have there is performing uh, like a core dump or a, a Java thread dump of a container, because again, that's not something that a monitoring tool is typically doing. And unless you have some scheduled task going on, it's uh, typically not happening. And so our idea there is, well, for these containerized environments, uh, as soon as that incident occurs, let's go and capture whatever that forensic evidence would be for a developer, allow you to restore service just as quickly, but then provide that debug level data for the engineering teams to figure out okay, was it, was it this one container that caused itself to crash? Was it a combination of two or three containers working in co- you know, cohesion with one another that, that caused the problem, all of the complexities of container environments? Right, because sometimes things get spun back up so fast that like you don't have a chance to investigate and see, okay, is this something that's going to happen again without having that muscle memory to, to know it, to go in and, and retrieve things and, and have them available, so... Yeah, super interesting because that environment can be moving so fast on its own. So yeah, super interesting there. And like you actually showed us some of this on the Twitch channel a couple weeks ago. So we'll add that link in the show notes for folks who kind of want to see how that works because it's super interesting to take a look at that stuff. Yeah, that's right. I'll go ahead and do that. Yeah. So bringing us back to Rumbook Automation as a whole, how do you see this space evolving? Like we've, we've come a long way from very small shell scripts, you know, in a directory somewhere. There's a lot of really comprehensive sort of enterprise level features in the process automation product and the other things that uh, folks are working on here. What ways are are these spaces going to continue to evolve? Yeah, well, I I think 
you know, ultimately what, what I kind of alluded to earlier is this notion of, you know, APIs for teams. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so what we're kind of doing on the incident response side is saying, okay, well, let's make that dependency between a first responder, whoever that might be, and the domain experts, let's try to cut that dependency, that direct dependency, if you will. And what we're looking at is the different kind of analogous use cases for customer service operations. There's so many times where customer service needs to rely on whether it's technical operations or engineering to perform certain things uh, to help customers. And then there's other departments within the org that, uh, you know, whether it's FPNA or strategy that needs uh, just reporting data from, again, operations, user data for analysis. You might have a data science team that you know mm, needs to, sure. has a dependency on, again, production operations teams. And we've seen some customers doing this really well already. But I think my hope is that the evolution of runbook automation is that it becomes this thing that you don't even see working in the background uh, that allows teams to work where they work today but that magically things are just happening faster and better for them. So if I'm a right a customer service representative and and I you know create a ticket to retrieve some information or do something for some customer that typically took a week because it was a ticket in someone's yeah, queue. Yeah, someone else's queue, right? You know, as soon as I submit that ticket or as, as soon as that ticket gets approved, that kicks off this runbook automation invisibly to that CS rep and you know, makes their lives easier, makes the customer's lives easier. And so automated diagnostics is a, is a nice kind of, again, easy way for us to, to yeah. demonstrate that core concept. But I think at large, what we're trying to do is, is create that seamless integration, if you will, between front office and back office operations. In this case, where front office is not so much front office, but more just first responders versus domain experts. But in that customer facing role, that customer service reps, that is really what we're talking about there is that front office, back office. Awesome. So it gives you this opportunity to sort of encapsulate all of the expertise that all your folks have and present it to everyone else. They don't have to know all the details. They just have to know which job to run and when to run it. And off it goes. And the magic happens. Exactly. Awesome. So to wrap up today, we have a question that we often ask folks on the podcast, and that is to debunk a myth. So is there a favorite myth or common misconception that you might have about, you know, runbook automation that you want to debunk for folks, things that um, you hear over and over again that we just want to set the record straight? <laughs> yeah. The myth around... Uh... That I would say around Rumbic automation is is this misconception that it is similar or analogous or identical to uh, a script or to a function specific tool or task specific tool. And again, this is where the the difficulty comes. Uh, kudos to our marketing and sales teams for for <laughs> conducting these conversations with the market. But you know, you have these task specific tools for deployments, for patching, for infrastructure provisioning. And we promote this notion of standardizing that and delegating that through self-service. And I think the confusion stems from the fact that technically you could 
build the automation primitives in our tool. But rationally, most of our customers want to wrap around those domain-specific tools. And so I think that the, the misconception from, especially from the more technical uh, users, from engineers, is that, uh, you know, why would I need this for me to do what I do? Mm-hmm. Because I can do all of this using whether it's Terraform or Ansible or a Python script. And so it's trying to uplevel that conversation to saying, no, 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 it's not, it's not for you to do your specific task better. It's for your team to, again, whether it's standardize or delegate those tasks. Awesome. So a couple other things that, that we like to know occasionally. So is there anything that you wish you had known sooner when it comes to runbook automation? Like you've been working on this stuff for a while. Is there anything that you had to learn the hard way? Yeah. So I got enamored with the uh, the value propositions of runbook automation. Like I mentioned, the original Rundeck crew and uh, the people that I knew working on that on that team and that project and they you know those original value props of again standardizing across an organization and self-service automation and self-service delegation and I started here at PagerDuty on the solutions consulting side which is uh, the equivalent of a sales engineer and you know so hyped on on selling those value propositions and uh and in smaller customers, it was it was fairly straightforward, I'd say, to hype them up on these and these value propositions, and then and then get started. But uh, in any organization of uh, let's say mid market size, even yeah, small mid market to you know on up, you know, it is this struggle of where do we start? Yeah, you have to know that you have to start somewhere small. It's, an, it's really impossible to say, okay, we're going to implement this standardization layer across everything right now. That's a behemoth project mm-hmm. uh, that's near impossible. And so it's it was recognizing, okay, w- the way that we're going to help customers really adopt this is start with a very specific task or a specific domain area on a specific, you know, maybe for just one team. Yeah. And uh, that will demonstrate the principles the customer and we will learn a lot about how to do this their way mm-hmm. and then we'll move to the next team or the next use case and then after three to a half dozen of these use cases then the customer and us have learned enough about what this would look like at scale that we can start implementing those at scale pieces of the puzzle if you will yes yeah definitely that's a, a lesson a lot of us learn i think as we've like go into different customer sites to implement things. And we talk about starting small, working out all the kinks and finding like the weird cobwebs in the infrastructure that are maybe Mm -hmm. in the way. And like you get to a point eventually where like everybody's amazed and like looking for the next team to work on is, is a people sign up and they're just waiting for to reap the rewards of, of the things that you already figured out. So exactly, exactly. Is there anything else you'd like to share with folks before we sign off today? This has been really good for anybody who's looking for information about Runbook Automation. What I would say is keep your ears peeled for this, this uh, you know, more on this automated diagnostics theme. I, as you can tell, I'm definitely an evangelist of it because I think it helps solve this problem of where do you start. Uh, I think it's an underestimated uh, use case for, for Runbook Automation. And we're going to be releasing assets and content around it, but as well as product more and more and more productizing the, the solution to be out of the box for our customers. 
keep your ears peeled for, for more on that. And uh, people can certainly reach out to me if they you know have ideas or questions. Uh, I believe that my LinkedIn and, and GitHub contact info will be provided uh, through the podcast. Yep, that will be on the website. Absolutely. We'll have some links in there where folks can learn more. And with everything PageDuty related, you can follow us at the PageDuty Twitter for more information. You can follow our blog for more updates and product information and all that good stuff too. So things will be posted there as they get released for, for folks that are interested in learning more. And this has been great, Jake. So thanks very much for joining us today. No, thank you. This has been great. So thanks for everybody out there listening. Uh, this is Mandy and I will wish you an uneventful day. That does it for another installment of Page to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at pageittothelimit.com and you can reach us on Twitter at pageittothelimit using the number two. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, uneventful days are beautiful days. <laughs>